This morning we will continue our series in the story of the Bible, and really what this series has been to me is really a 50,000-foot view or a very macro study of the Bible. And I hope that as we go through it, that you'll see that the whole purpose of the study is to show that Jesus Christ is being mentioned from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. We keep referencing this chart, um, and this chart's a good chart. It's a chart that depicts the ages of time. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and that set into motion time. And the first period that we come to is the age of the fathers. And that's a period of time where God had direct communication with man, where religion was more of a family-based religion. And that was when God communicated with people like Cain and Abel, and with Noah, and with Adam and Eve. And that period of time comes to an end when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for the final time and receives the Ten Commandments and comes down and presents the law to now the children of Israel. And now God deals with uh, people more on a national level. It's more of a national religion. The, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. God did deal with man on an individual basis from time to time during this period. But this was really a relationship between a nation and God. And it's during this time that Jesus lived. It's this time that Jesus operated, when Jesus conducted his ministry. It's during this time when Jesus was crucified and he was buried and he was resurrected. And we know that uh, the Apostle Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost when those people were concerned, when they realized that they took the Son of God and that they crucified an innocent man, and they asked Peter, what should we do? And Peter told them in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the people obeyed that, and they were baptized, and the church was formed, and the church began to grow. And that started a new dispensation, this age of Christ, where we're no longer under the law of Moses, we're no longer under these 600-some-odd oppressive laws, but now we're under the laws of Christ. Jesus came and made the statement, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law, to show us the true nature of who God is and who He is. And so today we're going to continue in the age of the fathers, beginning in Genesis 1 all the way to Exodus chapter 20. And what, again, I hope that we see is that we're seeing a picture of Jesus Christ. Um, it almost seems as if when you look at some of these historical biblical events that they're allegorical. You know an allegory is? An allegory is like a short story or a poem that has an interpretive hidden meaning. So an example I can give you is some of you have seen uh, maybe the movie The Pilgrim's Progress. That's an animated movie about a man who has this backpack on his back that he refers to as a burden. And he's on this way to a journey to find this heavenly celestial place of rest and peace. And as he's on this journey, he encounters all of these obstacles and these people that are trying to dissuade him from this journey and to cause him to trip up. And it's representative. It has an interpretive meaning. It's our spiritual journey as we try to get to heaven. That there are obstacles, there are people who carry burdens that go through life, that there's trying times. But we have this goal of trying to get to heaven. And so when we read these biblical events in, in the history, what we'll, what we'll see is that they're all pointing to Jesus. And they're almost allegorical in a sense. Now I don't believe that the Bible was written 
as an literary allegorical, uh, allegorical uh, book. I believe these are true events. These are real people. This is real things in history that happened. And I think that God allowed them to happen at these particular times to again point to this coming Messiah or to point to Jesus. And so Brother Trevor talked to us uh, last week. Uh, he started the Age of the Fathers. We talked about the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. We talked about the sin of Cain. And so we're going to pick up this morning with the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. So here Adam and Eve, they've now populated the earth. The earth is grown, and now mankind has become extremely corrupted. You know, we look at our, our world today, and it's, it's, it's very obvious and evident that the tide is turning, that it seems like society is becoming more and more wicked. But imagine a time, this time, when everybody virtually on the face of the earth was evil, to the point that every thought that they had was evil. It was continually evil. And so because of this, God is getting ready to pronounce a judgment upon these people. These are people who are beyond reprobation. They're completely gone, and God's going to destroy them. It says in verse 6, I hardly see that back there. Then the Lord was sorry that he had made man, that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. That word sorry there means he was, uh, that word sorry means, well, in the King James, in the King James it's translated, uh, he repented. So when you repent, you change, or you change directions, or you go a different way. So when God looked at man, he had a change of heart when he looked and saw how evil the world was. That word, that word grieve there means that he was hurt in his heart when he looked at man. So God's now going to bring a flood to destroy earth. And he says here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, that the end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy the earth. So God makes his pronunciation of judgment on the earth. And a lot of times when we think about the judgment of God upon people, we associate it with the anger of God or the wrath of God. How many times have we read in the scriptures that God's wrath was kindled against somebody, and so he's going to bring a judgment upon him? But this is written in a little different context. It says that God was grieved. This is a judgment out of grief, the sadness that when he looked upon humanity cut him to his heart to the point he wanted to turn away from it, and so now he's going to bring this humanity. And it just seems contradictory to the nature of God, because we know that God is loving, we know that God is merciful. But remember, there's only one family on the earth that's living upright, who's righteous, and that's Noah. And it's almost an act of mercy to Noah because I don't know how much longer Noah can live in this earth and maintain righteousness with all of this evilness around him. So this was God's measure to put a restraint on humanity and to spare the earth and the population of the earth through Noah's seed. So God tells Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So all these people who were living wickedly there's one man, Noah, and God takes note of him. Now, Noah's a man. He's not a perfect man, but he's a man of integrity. He's a man who's trying to walk upright, and so God acknowledges that, 
and God is going to extend grace to him. That word grace there means favor or kindness. So when God looked at Noah, he had kindness towards Noah. He had favor towards Noah. So God gives Noah the command, make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make room inside the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. So God gives specific instruction to Noah on the construction materials that he is to use in the construction of this vessel. He also goes on to tell him in verse 15, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. So God goes on to give him specific instruction on the dimensions of this vessel. And just for a frame of reference, a cubit would be 18 inches, so that's roughly a person's elbow to the tip of their middle finger. If we were to use this model to kind of, kind of give us a better uh, understanding of how big that would be, it's 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. We convert that into feet. That's 450 feet long. That's 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. To give some further perspective, that's roughly the size of 522 rail box cars. It's also, if you were to take a length of a football field and a half, it would be about that long. If you were driving down I-35 and you saw a commercial building that was four stories high, that would be about how high the ark was. As far as storage capacity on the ark, um, uh, you look at a semi-truck, you look at the trailer on those trucks, about 450 of those trailers would equal about the storage capacity on the ark. Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, Thus Noah did all according that God commanded him, so he did. So when God said, make this vessel out of gopher wood and make it this dimensions, Noah did that. And we want to highlight this word all here. Or in other words, there wasn't an instruction that God gave Noah that Noah disregarded. There wasn't an instruction that God gave Noah that Noah decided to modify. There wasn't an instruction that God gave Noah that he just completely thought, you know, I'll enhance this and make this bigger and better. He did exactly what God told him to do. Because if he hadn't done what God told him to do, the likely result of that would have been he would have perished in the flood. So, would he have been obeying God if he would have used oak instead of gopher wood? And the answer to that is no. If he would have built the, uh, the length of the ark, 250 cubits, instead of 300 cubits, would he have been obeying God if he had modified what God told him to do? And the answer to that is no. So what saved Noah? There are a number of things that have to come together for Noah to be saved but the first one we want to point out is grace. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, or Noah found kindness and favor uh, in the eyes of the Lord. You know, if you watch a lot of news, you hear a lot of these politicians uh, screaming up and down about, you know, this quid pro quo relationships. Quid pro quo is a Latin phrase. It means this for that or something for something. So when God looked at Noah, it wasn't that God wanted something from Noah. It's that God, out of his kindness and out of his favor, chose unilaterally, without any reciprocated uh, relationship, to choose to extend grace to Noah. It was a pure gift to Noah. There was nothing that Noah could earn, but it was purely a unilateral gift that God extended to Noah. 
It says in verse uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. So once God extended that grace to Noah, Noah responded in faith. When God said, build an ark because I'm going to destroy the world, God, uh, Noah believed what God said, and that motivated him out of a godly fear to take action through faith, through the belief and trust in what God said, to be able to prepare an ark, the work or the action that he took. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And if you were to look at the rest of that verse there, he says it's not something that you've earned, but that it's a gift from God. So people now who have accepted Jesus Christ, who have obeyed the gospel, they're saved because God made the choice himself unilaterally to extend grace to people who would respond in faith and believe that and obey the gospel. That's the only way by which we're saved, purely by the grace and the mercy of God. Now, it requires an action on our part. It requires a faith in the scriptures. It requires a faith in Jesus Christ and to be obedient to what the scripture says. Now, when Paul wrote this, he was writing to the church at Ephesus, and really the, the, the makeup of the church at Ephesus was a makeup of Jews and a greater population of Gentile people. So here you have this people who have lived this, this religious faith, they've had this favor, and they look at themselves as superior to other people, and now they're sitting in pews next to people who were Gentiles, people who were just years before worshiping rocks and wood and engaged in all types of immorality. And so you have these religious people looking at these non-religious people, and they're asking themselves in their mind, how can God accept anything like this? So the argument that Paul's making here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that God's willingness to save people has nothing to do with your perceived goodness of them or your perceived badness of them. God extends grace to all people regardless of their race, regardless of who they are or where they are on this earth. God has given grace to all mankind through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And those who respond in faith and believe in Jesus Christ and obey the gospel will be saved. To do away with this kind of favoritism uh, perception that they have of the ability of, and a willingness of God to save people. We see that Noah was saved by obedience. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household. So again, he believed what God told him that motivated him to go out, to cut the wood, to make the measurements, to hammer the nails, and to construct the vessel and to be obedient to what God said. Because again, if he didn't create the vessel, he would have perished with the earth. Is that all? We see that he was saved by water as well. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, it's no coincidence that the writer here puts that he was saved through water. There's an emphasis on water. And there's that foreshadowing effect that we see uh, in the Scripture. We know that in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. If you don't believe, you're not going to be baptized. Again, Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when he told him to repent and to be baptized. 
When we look at every conversion in the book of Acts, every person who was converted and became a Christian was baptized. And so baptism is essential and it's necessary to be saved. And so the water here that God used in the destruction of the earth is really representative of the judgment of God when Christ comes back to receive the church and to punish those who are not uh, found within the church. And the vessel itself is representative of Christ. Those people, the family that were found on the vessel, who were safe inside the vessel, it's the same today. Those who are found within Jesus Christ will be safe when he comes back in judgment on the earth. Is it true that Noah was saved by faith only? In James chapter 2, verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James also says in James chapter 2, verse 26, faith without works is dead. Somebody can claim that they have faith in God. Somebody can claim they have a Christian, but they, if they don't have a life, that exemplifies that. If there's no fruit in a life that we can correlate and say that person's a Christian, do they really have faith? You can say you have faith all day long, but if there's no fruit being produced from your life, you can't say that you have faith. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that I am the vine and you are the branches. He says those branches that produce fruit, I'm going to prune those branches, but the, the branches that don't produce fruit, they will be cut down and cast into the fire and destroyed. And so again, where there is a measure of work that is involved in being a Christian that, again, expresses our, our faith. And so uh, works are a necessary part of, uh, of the faith and being saved. So what's true? Noah was saved by the grace of God when he, through faith, obeyed God and built an ark that God used to save him on water, on the water from the evil world. So now the flood has happened. And in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, we find that the ark comes to the rest on the mountains of Ariad, which is modern-day Turkey. And God tells them to open the door, and he gives them this instruction. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. God gives them the command. Get out of the boat, multiply, and spread out across the earth. But there's a problem. When we go into Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, we see that the people have in fact been multiplying, but they're not spreading across the earth. And they begin to say this to themselves. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. If you go up to verse 2 in this chapter, it says that the people began to move eastward and they began to settle in the area of Shinar. Shinar is the region of Babylon. So instead of going and filling the whole earth, they moved east and decided to stop there in Babylon and they said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And then we're going to build this tower. Why? Because we don't want to be scattered across the earth like God said that they had to be. Now, why would God want them scattered across the earth? Because we know that a Messiah is going to come, and that Messiah is going to come through a lineage, and God's going to have a chosen people. And God can't have a chosen people if they're all congregated together and obviously partaking in idolatry. He needed the people to be separated on the earth. And so they build this tower. And... Um, God does this. He says, The Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. You ever heard the term babbling? Well, babbling comes from 
from all, traces all the way back to this. They're working on this thing. God confuses their language. Now they can't understand how to construct this. They can't work together. And that, what that essentially does is force them to migrate and populate over the earth. Now Noah, or Noah had three sons, Japheth, uh, Shem, and Ham. And Japheth was the oldest son of, of, um, of Noah. And what we see is his descendants go northwest and they essentially settled what we know is the European continent. So all the people over in that region who speak the uh, Indo-European language was a result of the, from the lineage of Japheth. And then we see that Shem, Shem is the ancestors of the children of Israel, that Shem migrated over into Asia. Now Shem had seven children. Um, and the children of uh, the, the nation of Israel came from Shem. And the youngest child was Ham. And Ham settled on the African continent. He had four sons, Cush, Merizim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt, Put, and Canaan, where the land of Canaan was. And so we see that this is how they began to disperse over the earth. But we're all from one blood. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth. We all stem from the lineage of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here's this man named Abram. His name was later changed to Abraham. And God comes to him and makes a promise to him. And that promise was threefold. That promise was, I'm going to give you a land, which would be the land of Canaan, and I'm going to make a great nation from your seed, which we know would later become the nation of Israel. And that worldwide blessing that he promised Abraham would be that Jesus Christ would come from his lineage. And that's the blessing that we enjoy today all the way back to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto the seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So Abraham uh, uh, departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Lot was the nephew um, of Abraham. And they begin this journey, and they start from this territory of Ur, and they're going all the way into the land of Canaan. But a problem arises on that journey. As they're going, their herdsmen begin to quarrel over the, the animals and over the resources that they had. So Abraham came to Lot and said, I'm going to give you an option. We can, we can go separate ways. If you go to the east, I'll go to the west. If you go to the west, I'll go to the east. And it says that Lot pitched his tent towards uh, so, uh, Sodom. And we know the sin of Sodom. And so he goes and he dwells there. But God's getting ready to destroy this territory because of their wickedness. And so God tells Abram. Abram joins an army. He goes back to rescue Lot. And Abraham pleads with God to spare these people. If you can just find 50 people in this city, God, would you spare it? And he comes back to God, if you can just find 40 people, if you can just find 30 people, if you can just find 20 people. But the, the city was so corrupted that God was going to annihilate it with fire and brimstone. And so Lot and his family were told to escape. And they did not look behind them. And they would escape to the mountains unless they'd be destroyed. But Lot's wife turned around and looked and disobeyed that command, and she became a pillar of salt. 
when we look at Abraham and the lineage of Abraham, Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. Jacob um, and Esau fought. They fought from their womb. And Jacob essentially swindled him out of his birthright. And so Esau began to chase him and began to, and was attempting to kill him. And he was running for his life. And while he was running for his life, God comes to uh, Jacob in the form of a man and wrestles with him all night long until finally Jacob just gives up at the daybreak. And God changed his name there to Israel. And the, the name Israel means because you wrestle with God and you wrestle with man and you prevail. Now, uh, Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see Joseph here, one of the younger brothers. And we know the story of Joseph, how his 11 brothers hated him because his father loved him and favored him and gave him a coat of many colors. And they took him and they stuffed him in the well and they were trying to get rid of him. And they went back and told their father that he had been murdered. And he had been picked up by merchants and had been taken into Egypt. And he was basically a slave in Egypt. But he earns a special status while he was in Egypt uh, with Pharaoh because of his ability to interpret dreams. And so now he takes a position of authority. And we know how the brothers, there was a famine there in uh, Canaan. And how they came to Egypt to find bread. And they discover their brother there. And they realize now they are the ones who are sorry before him. And now he's in a position of authority over them. And we know that Jacob settles his family there. And then, over time, the population of the Hebrews in Egypt begins to increase to about 3 million people, to the point where Pharaoh is told, look, you're going to have to take these Israelites and you're going to have to put them in slavery because they're going to overthrow us as a people because they're outnumbering us. And there they were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, subjected to the rips and the edicts of the Egyptians. There was a Hebrew woman who gave birth to a Hebrew baby. And at that time, a different Pharaoh had sent a decree among the land that they were to kill all the male Hebrew children. And this is Moses here. His mother puts him in a basket, sends him down the Nile River, and he's found by one of the daughters of Pharaoh. And she finds Moses, and she takes him in, and she raises him as her own. And he becomes an Egyptian prince. And as he gets older, one day he sees this event where this Egyptian is beating this Hebrew. And out of a fit of rage, he takes this Egyptian's life. And so now, because he's committed murder in his own country, he has to flee. And he flees to this territory of Midian. And he hangs out there, and he meets a woman. And he uh, develops a family there, and he begins to work for his father-in-law there. We see that at one point in time, he encounters God through a burning bush. And God tells him, you're going to be my man. You're going to go back into uh, Egypt, and you're going to deliver these people out of Egyptian slavery. And he begins to argue with God. I don't think I'm the right person to do it. God says, you're going to do it. And so he goes before Pharaoh, and he demands that Pharaoh set the Egyptian people free. Pharaoh hardens his heart, won't do that. God unleashes a series of ten plagues on the nation of Egypt until the final plague which makes Pharaoh cave and releases the children of Israel. 
when he released them, he changed his mind and he sent an army after the Israelites. And they come to the Red Sea and now they've got this army behind them and they're facing this Red Sea. And it says in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see them no more. And God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites traverse across it. And as the Egyptian army comes behind them, the uh, sea swallows the Egyptians and they pass safely through. And they come to uh, this territory. And Moses goes up on top of this mountain and he meets with God. And it's at this time he has several conversations and several trips up this mountain. But ultimately God gives him the Ten Commandments on this mountain. And God tells that he's going to enter into a new covenant with these people on a national level. And as he descends down the mountain, he presents the law. And that transitions us into the Mosaical Age. And Brother Bruce will have the next sermon on that. And that what happens next changes the way that God deals with people on a national level. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate your attention. Now, that's a lot of information to, to go through in the Age of the Fathers. But I hope that you see that all that information points to the coming of Jesus. At this time, we're going to uh, stand and sing a song that's been selected.